In the last two Sunday nights that I've been privileged to fill the pulpit, we have talked about and studied what is truly the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer, not the model prayer that He gave, but the Lord's Prayer itself. That is the prayer that He prayed just before His betrayal and His ultimate crucifixion. It is recorded for us in John, the 17th chapter. And really it has three divisions. The first five verses, as we studied initially, in those first five verses, Jesus prayed for Himself. The hour has come, He said to the Father. Glorify Your Son, that Your Son also may glorify You. Down at verse 4, I have glorified You on the earth. I have finished the work which You have given me To do. And then his prayer, his plea with the Father on his behalf was, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And we looked at some highlights of that beautiful and poignant prayer and that portion of it, in which he then turned his attention to his apostles, those whom he had chosen out of the world, and he prayed for their faithfulness. He prayed for their steadfastness. And he emphasized, as we pointed out, the word that he had given to them, the word that had been given to him from the Father that he had given to them, and the emphasis throughout this prayer, as we have already noticed, on the word and the power and the importance of the word. He ended the portion of the prayer dedicated to the apostles in verse 19. After in verse 17, praying, sanctify them by your truth, your word as truth. And then as you have sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself. I set myself apart to be the sacrifices we talked about for the sins of the world, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Remember the emphasis we gave to the truth and the word in those last few verses in which he was addressing the apostles' needs, his prayer for them. Sanctify them by what? Your truth. What is truth? Your word is truth. And then at verse 19, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Truth and the word are synonymous. And sanctification, which means to be set apart for a holy use, can only come and only does come when we bring our lives into harmony with the will of God when we obey the gospel, as we talked about it this morning. But now in our final part of this three-part study, we look at the last part of this prayer, and that's where we come in. That is, if we are believers tonight, we are addressed in the latter part of this Lord's Prayer. Listen to the verses from 20 through 26. I do not pray for these, that is the apostles, alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, 
that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. In the latter part of this prayer, the last part of it, believers for all time to come are under consideration here. And there's so much here that is so powerful, so poignant, so pertinent, and yet so tragically misapplied and misunderstood in the religious world today. And that is what constitutes true unity. And the unity of all believers that Christ prayed for so fervently. Go back to verse 20. I do not pray for these, the apostles alone, for whom he has just prayed, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And this is that word we have today. The apostles are on twelve thrones ruling over the church today through the word. And all other inspired writers who were inspired to write the New Testament. It is through that authority that we are to become believers. But believers with different doctrines, believers with different names, believers with different practices, is today's religious environment anything at all like what Jesus was praying for in this prayer? Well, the answer is clear. Because there are some key things that we see in this part of the Lord's Prayer, especially through verse 23, from verse 20. We see, first of all, a pattern for the unity of all believers. Then we see the place where that unity is to be achieved. Then we see the purpose for that unity that is expressed in this prayer of Jesus. And finally, we see the perfection that is to be found, the completion, the absolute will of God that is to be achieved through this kind of unity for which Jesus prayed. Is there a pattern for the unity of all believers? Or is it the case that God and Christ and the Holy Spirit have simply left us to go our own way, to worship in any way that we choose, to follow in any way we choose to follow, as long as we are loving and sincere in what we do. Well, no, the pattern is seen in verse 21. Verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. What's the specific pattern? That they all may be one. Christ is clearly praying that all believers for all time to come would be united. But is there a basis upon which he prays for that unity? Does he give us a, a standard by which we can achieve the unity for which he prayed? He does. As he goes on, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That's the pattern for unity for which Jesus prayed. That is a summary statement of the unity, the pattern for unity, that if we are to please God in Christ, we must achieve in that way and only in that way. And so, if we are to be pleasing to God in Christ by being united 
as Christ prayed for that unity, if we are to answer the Lord's prayer, as it were, if we are to be a part of answering that prayer tonight, the only way we can be a part of answering what the Lord so fervently prayed for just hours before His betrayal and ultimate crucifixion, the only way we can do it is by being one as He is one with the Father and as the Father is one with Him. And do we have to speculate as to how they are one? No. Look at some other passages. In John chapter 6, for example, and verse 38. There, Jesus says this, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What is the will under consideration there? The doctrine, the teaching. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And so, when Jesus prays that all believers will be one as the Father and the Christ, the Son, the Father and the Son are one, he is praying that we will have the same will, that our will will be the will of the Father, that our will will be the will of the Son, because their will is the same. Where is their will revealed in the New Testament? Therefore, his prayer is that we will be united on the teaching of the New Testament. Remember what Jesus said, as recorded in Matthew 7, 21 beginning, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the what? The will of my Father who is in heaven. In John 6, 38, he says, I came down from heaven to do the will of my Father. Then he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Therefore, to be united as God and Christ are united, we must be united in doctrine. We must be united in doctrine. In John 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. One in nature, of course. One in doctrine? Who would possibly contend otherwise? Obviously they are one in doctrine. When you go down to verses 37 and 38 of that same 10th chapter of John, you read, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do... Though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in, in, I in him. Statement after statement, clearly revealing that God and Christ are one in nature. God and Christ are of the divine nature. They are members of the Godhead, but they are one in doctrine. And that's the point we want to emphasize, is that there is no unity that answers the Lord's prayer tonight that is a unity that is designed or based in agreeing to disagree. That's an impossibility. We cannot please God by agreeing to disagree unless we are agreeing to disagree in matters of opinion that are not matters of doctrine. But we are clearly concentrating tonight on matters of faith. And we cannot differ and still be an answer or a part of the answer to the Lord's Prayer. So the pattern for unity in this verse, verse 21, is as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one. Now listen to these next two words. And here you find the place of unity in us. The pattern of unity, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be one, where? In us. The only place for unity 
is in Christ. If any man is in Christ, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.17, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. For whom? For the one who is where? In Christ. To be united, we must be in Christ. But what did Paul say about getting into Christ in Galatians 3.27? For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is no unity outside of Christ, but there is no access into Christ without the culminating act of our obedient faith, which is baptism. Something which the religious world as a whole completely denies and will vehemently argue against in terms of its being for remission of sins. Maybe a good thing to do, maybe a good thing to show your salvation, etc., but not as the Bible teaches, tragically. And yet in the Lord's Prayer, the only place where unity can be achieved is in Christ, and the only way to get into Christ is by a belief that leads you to repent and confess and be baptized. And what about the purpose for unity? We see it as verse 21 continues. That, in order that, here it is, all of it, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Here's the purpose of unity. That the world may believe that you sent me. Think about it. Think about tonight the impact that Christianity would have on the world if indeed Christianity as such were truly all New Testament Christianity and not that which has to be put in quotes because it is not truly according to Scripture. Do you not believe that the different names and the different doctrines and the different buildings that are seen throughout this community and so many others in this land and beyond its shores, that all of that causes some to say, you're trying to tell me that the Bible is the explicit and clear word of God when those of you who claim to be followers of Christ cannot even agree on it and one of you teaches this and one of you teaches that? And you are all divided? Can we not understand why the Lord would pray that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us so that the world may believe that you sent me? Religious division is a tragedy beyond description. And there's no way for that kind of division to in any way, shape, form, or fashion answer the Lord's Prayer. You remember what Paul wrote to the Corinthians and some of the division even within the church at Corinth. And in addressing the division within the church at Corinth, he in principle addressed the denominational division that characterizes our world today. When he wrote, Now I plead with you, brethren, verse 10 of chapter 1, By the name of our Lord Jesus, that is, by His authority, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And then he went on, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. What kind, Paul? Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, 
or I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is that not the denominational concept in principle being dealt with here within the congregation at Corinth? They were following different men, different names. And there's no way to divorce that concept that is so clearly condemned by Paul from the denominational division that exists in our world tonight, tragically. And then he asked rhetorically in verse 13, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And then he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. And then he says, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. And then he made a statement that many try to latch on to to try to deny baptism altogether today in the denominational world when he says, for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. And there are those who will say, there it is. There's the passage that says baptism is not essential. That's not what Paul was saying at all. He was saying that it's not my primary mission to immerse people in water for the remission of their sins. But he was not de-emphasizing baptism at all. Not at all. He was saying in the context, if I had baptized more of you, then I'm afraid I would have contributed to more of you following me than following Christ, because that's what you're doing. And yet there have been those who have latched onto this passage to say, see there, Paul said Christ didn't send me to baptize. Well, if you take that literally, then Paul violated the will of God. Because he baptized some, he said so right here. And if Christ did not send him to baptize anybody, he violated God's will when he baptized the first one. No, that's not what he's saying, is it? He's saying, I'm glad I didn't baptize any more of you because you have a propensity to follow those who have baptized you and you're following men. But oh, what a wonderful thing it would be if indeed we were all united in the one body of Christ tonight that the world may believe, Jesus prayed, that you sent me. And then he says, And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made, listen to this, made perfect in one. There's the perfection in one. What did Jesus have in mind when he said that they may be made perfect in one? Well, he meant that they may be made perfect being unified together, but in one what? In one body. In one pre-denominational called out body of believers. The church. Look at Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. And in that passage, the Apostle Paul writes, For he himself, Christ, is our peace, who has made both, that's Jew and Gentile, all men, one, and has broken down the middle wall of division between us, the old law of Moses, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. What is that? He tells us that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, the law of Moses, so as to create in himself 
one new man from the two, thus making peace. Listen to verse 16. And that he might reconcile them both, Jew and Gentile, all mankind, to God, reconcile them to God, where, Paul? In one body, through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Give me the cross, someone says, but don't talk to me about the church. You can't talk about the cross without talking about the church. Because Paul says, we're reconciled to God in one body, which is the church, through the cross. And as we mentioned this morning, Acts 20, 28, Paul told those Ephesian elders, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And he purchased it so he could reconcile all mankind back to God in that one body. And so when Jesus prays that they may be made perfect in one, there is only way, one way that perfection can be achieved in answer to the Lord's prayer. And that is in the one body, which is the church. And then he adds again, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. And that's ultimately in heaven. It's the fervent desire of Christ that all believers would ultimately be with him and behold his glory. Oh, what a prospect. What a prospect to think about ultimately being with Christ as John put it in his first epistle, seeing him as he is, seeing him face to face, beholding his glory. The world has not known you, he says to the Father, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. Jesus proved beyond doubt as he lived among men that he did not speak of his own authority, but that God had sent him and that he did the will of God. In verse 26, the final verse of the beautiful prayer expresses, And I have declared to them your name, your authority, your teaching, and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. And that reminds us that if we are going to achieve the unity for which Christ prayed, and if we are going to be a part of answering his prayer, the motivation for so doing will be a deep and abiding love, the reciprocal love for the one who first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. And if we love to that extent, to the fullest extent of our being, then we will dedicate ourselves to being one according to the pattern for unity as God and Christ are one in the only place where that unity can be achieved in Christ with the purpose for that unity being that the world may believe that God sent Christ and the only way that that perfection in that unity can be seen and that is in the one body which is the church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If there is someone here tonight who does not know that kind of unity because you have not brought your life into the harmony with the will of God that can bring you into the body in which all men are reconciled to God and that is the church. We plead with you tonight.
to become a part of answering the Lord's Prayer for unity. You know, that prayer was answered initially. It's not being answered tonight by the religious division that exists, no, but it was answered. It was answered initially when? On Pentecost Day. When the Church of Christ came into existence and some 3,000 souls obeyed the gospel. This prayer we've been studying was answered then. And those believers were one. They were one. They had all things in common. They sold what they had when needs arose and they helped each other and they loved each other and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. That's the kind of unity that the church everywhere must project in every community so that hopefully right-thinking souls can be drawn to become a part of a group of loving people who love the Lord and who are seeking with all their hearts to answer his prayer tonight for the unity for which he so fervently prayed. If you'll believe in him as the Christ, repent of your sins, confess him to be the Christ, and be buried with him in baptism, all things can become new for you this very night, and you can be added to that body, the unified body of Christ that meets here in this place. We plead with you to do that or to come home to your first love if you have become a part of the disunity that falling away from the faith exhibits. Come home in repentance. And for all those who need no response at all publicly to this invitation, may you never lose sight of the importance of being a continual part of answering the Lord's Prayer for unity as we work together and labor together and love each other and project that unity to those around us. As we stand to sing, if you need to respond, will you come?